Hello, everybody, and welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Stephen Puja. We're doing things a little bit differently this week here on Oscar Watch. It's just me. Don't worry. Alex is doing fine, and he will be back next episode. We just encountered some, how shall I say, technical chicanery when recording this episode previously. The fault lies entirely with me. My computer is becoming less and less reliable, or perhaps I have overlooked a setting necessary to creating better sound. I hopefully will have it fixed for next week's episode. Here's how it's going to go down. Alex and I have already discussed this week's movie, Ordinary People. We've done it twice, actually. It was a great conversation, one filled with personal reflections and keen insight towards ourselves and the film itself. It sounded like crap. So, I have taken bits of our dialogue and turned it into a solo show. You'll hear me, but it will be both of our words. It should also be a bit shorter than normal. Uh, So, I'm going to take a short break, and when I come back, I'll get into the 1980 Academy Awards. And the winner is... This is the time I'm right. Ordinary People. Ordinary People was nominated for six Academy Awards, ultimately winning four. In addition to Best Picture... The movie picked up Best Adapted Screenplay. It was based on the 1976 novel of the same name by Judith Guest. The film was directed by Robert Redford, and despite the sheer level of competence he displays, this was actually his first time in the director's chair. For his efforts, he was rewarded with Best Director, beating out other greats like Roman Polanski, David Lynch, and Martin Scorsese. Fun fact... This was the first time Scorsese, who directed Raging Bull this year, would lose to a debut director for what is arguably one of his great films. It was not, however, the last. He would lose again in 1990 to Kevin Costner for Dances with Wolves. The winner is Timothy Hutton. Arguably, the biggest win for this film was Timothy Hutton, who won Best Supporting Actor. At just 20 years old, Hutton was and remains the youngest man to ever win an acting Oscar. Though he had more screen time than his co-star, Best Actress nominee Mary Tyler Moore, the move to nominate him for supporting was most likely a political one. This was the year of Raging Bull, De Niro's last Oscar win and one of the greatest performances of all time. This was also Hutton's debut performance, and while he would take gold for his role as Conrad Jarrett, the rest of his career never lived up to the promise shown here. Although Alex is a big fan of his work in The Dark Half. Finally, the film also picked up a nomination for Mary Tyler Moore for Best Actress and Judd Hirsch for Supporting Actor as well. Ordinary People had some extraordinary competition to square off against that year. In addition to the aforementioned Raging Bull, which, I might add, routinely tops the sight and sound pole of greatest motion pictures, you also had David Lynch's The Elephant Man, whose blanking at the awards that year would prompt the Academy to create the Best Makeup category as well as Roman Polanski's Tess and Michael Apted's The Coal Miner's Daughter, which would pick up Best Actress for Sissy Spacek. 
I'm going to run this pun into the ground, but what an extraordinary year for movies. 1980 was just on fire. This is where Alex tells you about all the trashy 80s horror films that came out this year. And I must say, there is a hell of a list. The first Friday the 13th came out. And why aren't they making more of these? How hard is it anyways? They have a million Hellraiser sequels. Why can't we have a few more Friday the 13th films? Both Cannibal Holocaust and Cannibal Apocalypse came out. There was Encounters of the Spooky Kind, Motel Hell, which is just all kinds of silly sounding, Alligator with the great Robert Forster, City of the Living Dead, John Carpenter's The Fog, Terror Train and Prom Night because Jamie Lee Curtis needs that Scream Queen money, oh, and a little horror movie you may have heard of called The Shining. Here's Johnny! And those are only the horror films. You want comedy? Three of the greatest comedies of all time hit this year. Airplane, Caddyshack, and the Blues Brothers. If those were the only comedies you ever watched, it would certainly be enough. And while I'm not a fan of the Donner Superman films, I will give Superman 2 credit for being the best of them. There was also the trashiness of Flash Gordon, The Blue Lagoon, The Big Red One, Private Benjamin, Fame, Fame, and of course... No discussion of 1980 can be complete without giving props to the best Star Wars film of all time, The Empire Strikes Back. When they say they don't make them like they used to, I think they may be referring to 1980. It's some next-level stuff on display. But we didn't come here to discuss Star Wars. Not yet, at least. I'm going to go drink some coffee, and when I get back, I'll take you through the waspy privilege that is ordinary people. Did it hurt? Uh, no, I don't know. I don't remember, really. You don't want to talk about it? I, I don't know. Uh, I've never really talked about it. To doctors, but not to anyone else. You're the first person who's asked. Why'd you do it? I don't know, it was like falling into a hole. It's like falling into a hole and it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And you can't get out. And then all of a sudden, it's inside. And you're the hole. And you're trapped and it's all over. Anyone who hasn't seen Ordinary People, it's basically a family who's been ripped apart after the older son dies. A mother, Beth, father, Calvin, Donald Sutherland, and two sons, the elder son, Buck, dies, and the whole family is dealing with it. That is pretty much the movie. The younger son, Conrad, Timothy Hutton, attempts suicide and ends up in a psychiatric institute, and he's just getting home when the movie begins. Then we're off to the races. A lesser movie would create a power dynamic. The two men against the mother, the mother and son against the dad, something like that. As such, because it doesn't pick sides, you can relate a little to everyone. Both Alex and I, having watched the film originally when we were moody and depressed teenagers, could relate to Conrad especially. Even today, he's a wonderfully nuanced character. But now, we're either dads or on the road to fatherhood. And of course, as you go back to films, you always see more into it. 
I probably understand the parents a lot more now, rather than just feeling from the kid's point of view. But ultimately, I couldn't help but feel more of a kinship to Calvin, to Donald Sutherland's character. And maybe it's because I've been thinking just a whole hell of a lot with the whole having a baby thing. But the way he's caught in the middle between this Cold War between his wife and his son, because his wife, Mary Tyler Moore, she was Team Buck. That was her kid, and after Buck died, she just shut down. And because Conrad was there during the, the death, she does hold some resentment towards him. She loves she loves him, but she can't relate to him the same way as she could to Buck. And Donald Sutherland is there, caught in the middle. They're butting heads. He just wants to play peacemaker. There's this great conversation in the car between Beth and Calvin on how Calvin is always so nice and happy to see people, and Beth is just not. And I can relate to that. Honey, I love you, but this is us. Calvin just wants to help. He wants things to be fine and be happy, and he wants to understand a bit more than the other characters. He's definitely trying to put himself in Conrad's shoes more than anyone else outside of the therapist. That's that's his way of dealing with things, or trying to deal with things, of trying to figure it all out, his son out. Ultimately, his kindness and caring brings him to Judd Hirsch's psychiatrist character, the Jewish outsider who is taking a look at this very waspy family and its breakdown. Calvin goes there to not so subtly needle Hirsch to see what his son is talking about, and then realizing it's also, well, he's got his own stuff to work on himself. It's a great scene, even if it does violate any number of ethical consideration when it comes to treating family members. Psychiatrists are not supposed to treat members of the same family separately. Ordinary People was and still is lauded by the psychiatric community for its positive portrayal of the field. So this was the 80s, the free will in 80s, and even today there still was this big stigma on mental illness. But back then it was even crazier because going to a psychiatrist is like, what is wrong with you? Why can't you solve it? And that's made abundantly clear in the character of Beth. Why do we need to go to to a psychiatrist, she would say. In steps Judd Hirsch as sort of the outside inciting incidents, and he is such a force for good, for positivity, that you could almost call him the hero. I do love the way the film starts, because it starts with this beautiful choir, just very, very, very white waspy choir singing canon in D major. A wonderful, beautiful song that is used as a motif throughout the film. And it's just showing everyone happy, normal. And then bam, Conrad waking up in a panic, sweating and screaming. It's such a great way to start off the film and show, and show you what you're in for. Just everything looks fine and serene on the outside, but inside there's something rotten in Denmark. Nor does the film just come right out and say why things are bad. Redford does use flashbacks to tell the story, sure, but a lesser film would have started with the boating accident, showing you all its cards from the first moment. Not here. Redford teases out the events that happened before judiciously, carefully. They heighten our understanding, rather than just giving us shock or some emotional manipulation. Wasn't your fault. But it was. You said get the cell down. And I couldn't. I couldn't. It jammed. And then the halyard, the halyard jammed, and I got the halyard jammed. And then you're sitting, you're scrolling around until it's too late to do anything. And I'm supposed to take care of it. I'm supposed to take care of it. And that wasn't fair, was it? No. And then you say, hang on, hang on. And then you let go. 
Why'd you let go? Because I got tired. Yeah? Well, screw you, you jerk! Conrad's breakdown towards the end of the film is definitely the Oscar clip they showed at the ceremony. I was nearly in tears during this scene because I am a sucker for characters self-actualizing when they realize a hidden or deep truth in, in themselves. And it just has to come out in anger and tears, or both. That stuff just, I don't know, it, it gets me. And that's what Hirsch inspires in Conrad. He learns that he's not mad, he's not crazy, that he can forgive himself for being the one who survived because he has a serious case of survivor's guilt because he was literally with his brother when Buck died and he just couldn't hold on to the boat. And then there's this great moment with Judd Hirsch who says that maybe you are the stronger one. And sometimes you need someone to wheedle you into taking a look in the mirror and stepping back and forgiving yourself. Sometimes you need those breakthroughs. And when it comes, it is powerful. It is a very powerful scene. And and Redford directs it with an even-handedness you normally find in a far more experienced director. Any scene in this film could have easily ventured into the absurd, ridiculous melodrama. But I never felt like the issue is being forced. And when these big emotional moments happen, they've been built up so much, so carefully crafted to the breaking point that Redford earns the emotional payoff that he is seeking. He got such great performances out of everyone, especially Timothy Hutton, that I I never feel like we're just watching archetypes on the screen. And the script is so well written that everyone is relatable, even and especially Beth. All he wants is to know that you don't hate him. That's hate it. him? God, how could I hate him? Mothers don't hate their sons. Is that what he told you? Do you see how you accept what he says with no questions and you can't do the same thing for me, I'm just trying to keep this family together. God, I don't together. know what anyone wants from me anymore. Nobody wants anything uh, from me. Listen, Beth. look, look. We all just want Cal, Connor, everybody. We just want you to be happy. Happy? Yes. Ward, you tell me the definition of happy, huh? But first you better make sure that your kids are good and safe. That no one's fallen off a horse or been hit by a car or drowned in that swimming pool you're so proud of. Oh. And then you come to me and tell me how to be happy. For years afterwards, Mary Tyler Moore would occasionally get comments saying that she was such a bitch in this film. And besides being A, incredibly rude, and B, sexist, it's not true. Beth is not a bitch. She's cold, yes. But there is love in there. It's just that there was always more love for Buck, the son who died. She has built her life on appearances and maintaining the sort of keeping up with the Joneses surface level perfection that is inherent to a lot of wasp culture. Like you got to look the part to be the part, but inside things are cold and dying and she's crying out and she refuses to accept that she's crying out. And I commend the movie for not giving us an everything's fine. Everyone's great ending as related to Beth. And, uh, and even now, almost 40 years later, I found this ending to be extremely compelling and emotional without being overly manipulative. I understood where everyone was coming from and why they did what they did, and I didn't feel that Redford was pushing us to feel a certain way. But it's the ending is heartbreaking and also very bittersweet. Like, oh God, mom left. She leaves. How many films are made nowadays in which the mother leaves at the end? She doesn't even say goodbye to her son. Now, that is bold. 
but she's too broken. She has to go through her journey herself, whatever journey that may be, and I almost wish the movie focused a little more on it. She doesn't have a lot of screen time, despite being the Best Actress uh, nominee, and so it doesn't get a whole lot into it. But still, there at the end, there is hope. You know, I used to figure you had a handle for everything. You knew it all. And I know that wasn't fair, but you always made us feel like everything was going to be all right. I thought about that a lot lately. I really admire you for it. Well, don't admire people too much. They'll disappoint you sometimes. I'm not disappointed. I love you. I love you too. I love the party that Beth and Calvin attend because it is just this great little montage of every bullshit white people thing you could ever possibly encounter at one of these parties in about two minutes. I haven't been to one of these things in a while, and I kind of grew up around them, but that this movie in that scene, the whole thing, it captures that, that lifestyle, which was, in 1980, that was America. And honestly, I'm kind of looking forward to going to one of these things someday in the future and talking about investments, about vacation homes, and all of the superficial bullshit. Because that is the only thing that matters, apparently. Like, for instance, Beth doesn't like it when they go to the party and Donald Sutherland is talking about how his son is going to therapy. And she jumps in and immediately cuts him off because he's talking about real things. She doesn't want people knowing that. She doesn't want people knowing their private business. And the fact of the movie is that they can't handle things on their own. They need to reach out. Calvin needs to reach out. Conrad needs to reach out. So in a way, it's everyone. It's everyone's coming out to their emotions and they're dealing with what's going on in their lives or not as is the case with beth Connie, Connie. Yeah, i want to take a picture of connie and his mother uh, no i'll tell you what let's get the three men in there and i'll take a picture of you connie move in a little closer to your mother okay prize winner yeah that's great portrait that is great. do it page one lake forester isn't it mother yes it's i love it yeah, yeah. sure doesn't cost calvin hold it connie smile Calvin! Just a second. Smile. Calvin, give me the camera. No, I didn't get it yet, Beth. Come on, give me the camera. Beth, give me the camera. I want a really good picture of the two of you, okay? No, but I really want to get a shot of the three of you men. Give me the camera, Calvin, Not until I get a picture of the two of you. Cal! Hang on a second. Give me the goddamn camera! One of the big issues with the film is that it is absolutely rich white people problems, the movie. Conrad has it easy compared to most. So I can see people being annoyed at this character for, like, why don't you look at all the good things you have? Look at your house. It's gigantic. It's bigger than all of our compartments combined. But, you know, at the same time, it is a very universal problem, a very universal life experience. A very Sundance film, as it turns out. Uh, Side note, Redford had started the festival a few years before, and this is basically the template for all Sundance pictures for the next 40 years. So, yes, the film deals with rich-ass white people. The outlet for solving the problem is white, it's upper-middle class, it's very privileged. But the underlying theme, the underlying problem, that is something anyone can relate to. Hopefully not all of us. Losing a son or brother is tough, but 
the emotional roller coasters we all go through. And it's how you deal with it, that loss, that becomes the drama, becomes the conflict that propels the story forward. Ultimately, the, the movie is really about next to nothing, this one little blip in existence, but it's that's everything. It's about a boring, mundane, as the title suggests, ordinary life, and that becomes the human condition entire. And you are unpredictable. But you're so cautious. You're determined, Beth. But you know something? You're not strong. And I don't know if you're really giving. Tell me something. Do you love me? Do you really love me? I feel the way I've always felt about you. We would have been all right if there hadn't been any mess. You can't handle mess. You need everything neat and easy. I don't know. Maybe you can't love anybody. There was so much Buck. When Buck died, it was as if you buried all your love with him, and I don't understand that. I just don't know. I don't... Maybe it wasn't even Buck. Maybe it was just you. Maybe finally it was the best of you that you buried. But whatever it was, I don't know who you are. I don't know what we've been playing at. So I was crying. Because I don't know if I love you anymore. And so, the question we always pose to ourselves here on Oscar Watch, did ordinary people deserve Best Picture? And I have to say, I think this is the first time that both Alex and I really like the movie. It absolutely holds up. But our counter, Raging Bull. God damn, Raging Bull is so good. Like Next level. If we ever do an episode on biggest upsets, that would be near the top. Because it's just a stunning, stunning film. Ordinary People is worth your time, and its themes and characters are still relatable today. It is a moving film, and while I can understand why the Academy would award Best Picture to it, they were on a kick of emotionally powerful family dramas at the time. History has anointed Raging Bull the better of the two, and history is absolutely correct. So... Ordinary people, you're great. I love you. Raging Bolt absolutely deserved this one. And so there you have it. Ordinary people, an extraordinary film, an ordinary Oscar winner. Wow, Clarice. 
Have the lamb stopped screaming? Next week on Oscar Watch, in honor of Halloween, we are going to take a look back at literally the only horror film to have won Best Picture, 1991's The Silence of the Lambs. And I think we'll definitely have a debate about what exactly counts as horror. Until then, everyone, see you on the red carpet. We should take it slow. We're just ordinary people. We don't know which way to go. Cause we're 